Welcome to the Anime Podcast. You find us deep in the sewers beneath the Metropolitan Detention Centre in Brooklyn, in the vain hope of intercepting the murderous ghost of Jeffrey Epstein and preventing Ghislaine Maxwell's definitely not suspicious suicide. This week's informal conversation covers the formation of the Irish Parliament and criticism of an article by Kill All Normies author Angela Nagel. Enjoy! This podcast was recorded on Tuesday of this week before the results of the leadership election of the Green Party were announced, in which uh, Eamon Ryan won, and also after which uh, Saoirse McHugh, as well as many other activists, departed the Green Party. So welcome to the Anime Podcast. Uh, this week we're going to have another free, free flow conversation between myself, Alex, uh, Will, and uh, James. And the topic, well, topics, because there's a number of things that intersect, will be the formation of the Irish government, which finally happened a week or so ago. Um, the Green Party, in particular, Eamon Ryan and the kind of the party leadership, their decision to do that. We're going to cover things like the Apple bailout. Um, sorry, the Apple tax, Apple tax ruling, uh, which came down on Wednesday last week, I think. Uh, we'll also be talking about an article by Angela Nagel about woke Ireland in quotation marks, and anything else that comes up really uh, along the way. So I suppose just to get the ball rolling, uh, a government is now formed. Historically, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, the Green Party and some independents, because why not? Um, and the Green, and some people, not myself, surely not any of the people who listened to the two earlier episodes in April and also in, I think in the end of February, where we talked about the Green Party, almost certainly we're going to do this. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, they've done that. Uh, younger people who apparently never understood that they were in power for four, four years, a decade ago, have been very surprised, and there's been lots of Twitter reactions. So, what do we think about this, gentlemen? I mean, I think the first thing to say is that I don't think it was a young voter base that that did get the Green Party in. I do think it's very much the case it was people that are were our age. It's basically people that like were old enough to remember what happened last time. Yeah, the youth voted more for Sinn Féin than, than anyone else. They did, but at the same time, if you look at... I mean, again, it's, it, you should also break it down by class and, and kind of urban areas because the Greens don't get any fucking votes no matter what age you are, what class you are in the West Coast because farmers don't like the Greens. Um, but it was very much a kind of a Dublin, middle-class, young... I would say either naive, uh, maybe a bit idealistic in the wrong way. I mean, I don't know how, don't know how you'd be idealistic about the Greens. Anyway, they do seem to be legitimately uh, shocked. I mean, uh, the people who said they were going to leave the party if the party ever went into government with Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, looking at you, Saoirse McHugh, have not left the party, uh, are now just griping from the sidelines of the party, I, which is kind of really showing them up for what they always were. I don't know. I, I, I can only say they were naive, or careerists, maybe. Um, I mean, again, not really surprising that they've done it. They... They were salivating at the merest thought of getting back into power. Rather humorously, as an aside, 
two of the very um, kind of well-known advisors to the government of 2007 through 2011, of course, very famous years for the economy, have been reinstalled by the two lingering members of that government. So Michal Martin and Eamon Ryan were both members of government between 2007 and 2011, oversaw the collapse, the bailout, everything, you know. Those they've appointed their chief advisors to sack the exact same ones from 2007 to 2011. So it's business as usual, you know. I've got some of the um, the the exit poll breakdown here. So for um, 18 to 24 year olds, uh, Sinn Fein got 31.8 percent of the vote, and the Green Party got 14.4, which means that um, more young people voted for Fine Gael than it did for the Green Party. Not by much, by one or two percent, but um, let's have a look at 25 to 34. Yeah, that's actually lower. So from 25 to 34 year old, um, Sinn Féin are at 31.7 and the Green Party is at nine. And then, yeah, once you start getting into the, the 35s and beyond, then, you know, you know exactly where it goes. So yeah, yeah, it's, um, I think it's also just for people that are not voters in Ireland or know about the system that well, but it's also a, um, you vote for more than one party at the time, it's a preferential vote. So many people would maybe put, you know, Sinn Féin one, Greens two, because um, a lot of people would see or naturally be inclined to think that the Greens are the best of a, of a bad option. But there was a lot of, in the same way in in the election in um, December, there was, you know, a lot of uh, voting sites that you could you could join, and they would tell you to vote for the Greens, but they wouldn't tell you to vote for, you know, people before profit or people like that, or maybe an independent that wouldn't have, you know, that much presence. Not nearly as corrupt as it was in December last year, where it didn't tell, you know, no matter what the situation was, it was telling you to vote Lib Dems. Um, but I think like like some people were were led astray uh, because the Greens look good on paper. You just have to remember how bad they are in reality. It should also be said again: people who pay attention to Irish news already know all this. Um, that seventy seven percent of the Green Party, not just the upper echelons of the leadership, seventy seven percent of the members voted for this. So, I mean, with the help of Mark Ruffalo, for anyone who was paying attention, <laughs> again, if Will wasn't paying attention that at the time, that is actually something that happened. Mark Ruffalo zoomed in on the membership debate and said, you got to join the party, you got to do this, not knowing, having a clue who they were going into government with or how little power they had. This is something he really did. Wow. What a great guy. Uh, <laughs> no. And now the government's formed. And it's very much a, a government of its class, uh, the, you know, middle class, upper middle class, you know, basically those uh, millionaires, in the case of you. Um, you. You have now, for the first time in Irish politics, is a, is a kind of a left-right split in the Irish parliament, where all the parties of opposition, besides maybe a few crazed people from Kerry, are kind of left of centre, if not socialists, in the case of uh, people for profit and various independent socialists. Which is a good thing, historically speaking. You kind of have to try and be uh, kind of optimistic to some degree. That's the first time that's ever happened. And that's that's a good thing that that's happened. And people are now thinking more along those lines. It, it's a good thing that the latest polls 
show Fine Fall, which dominated, which was in government for 80 of the last 100 years of the history of the state, is now at 9%, which is the lowest in, in literally ever. I mean, when the party was formed in 1927, having only just exited prison and being members of the IRA and openly so, they still had like 26 or 27 percent. They would never have been at nine. Um, and that's a huge thing. And the fact that Fine Gael is hoovered up the right of center um, kind of sphere. I don't know what you'd call it. That's also historically speaking a major thing. So I, I don't know. I think while I'm, I'm worried about what's going to happen because the, the class interests are definitely strong in the new government coalition. At the same time, it can fall apart really quite rapidly if the Green Party gets hammered, if they get rat-fucked, well, not rat-fucked, but if they get, if they their electorate go, right, we're going to punish you, which they will, um, they quite quickly could pull the plug on the thing. So I don't know. Um, I'm trying to be optimistic. What do you guys think about it? So, like, I'm kind of curious to know, like, um, I've kind of seen or, like, I've, I've been gestured towards, like, a load of... Um, a load of like articles and stuff um, that are kind of suggesting that like this is perhaps like the furthest right um, that kind of Greens have been persuaded towards. So like the idea is that they're quite kind of environmentally friendly when it comes to um, economic policy and things like this, but they're really right wing when it comes to like social projects. Um, so apparently they, they kind of, I don't know, again, like you guys will need to correct me on this. I don't know if it's accurate to say that they've already kind of shown um, a lot of capitulation to like the right wing in the Irish Parliament. I don't know if that's fair to say. That is fair to say. Grim. But also not surprising. You know, yeah. that's the way they were back in 2007 to 2011. They so fucking bailed out I suppose banks. Like, you know? I suppose like I'm surprised by this because like um, being a naive rube, <laughs> um, I kind of like took seriously like Sirisha McHugh um, when she was like, as James like was saying a second ago, was like talking the talk about um, direct action and you know mutual aid and like using like quasi anarchist language um, to discuss policy. Like I thought, wow, she clearly knows her stuff, and um, this is going to be really great if they get into power and she's got such a prominent platform because she became such like a such a star within that election that um, clearly she's going to like help shape the direction of the Irish Parliament. Um, I think it's fair to say, though, that the Greens are getting rat-fucked almost immediately, though. Um, I mean, if you think about what's happened with Phoenix Park, where you know the Greens basically said that they wanted it to be closed to, to traffic for like a bit longer, and then they went and opened it anyway. So the Greens' line was already crumbling. And... You know, instead of like standing up for themselves, they basically just gave the other two parties more bargaining power where they can, you know, along the lines go, oh, well, you know, if you want the Phoenix Park to be close to, to cars again, you're going to have to do something else for us. Um, and that's that's like as far as I'm concerned, has set the that'll set the rhythm for um, the government for the next two and a half years. Uh, if, it lasts, if, if it lasts that long, which I don't think it will. I think it, well, I mean, the only thing that would break it down would be Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael falling out with each other. And which, but there's a reason to suppose that that might happen, and here's why. There is a part of the Fianna Fáil base that still thinks they're Republicans. They're not huge. Um, I wouldn't even say they're, they're half anymore. They're probably a third. They're usually older. 
they usually remember remember Eamon de Valera being alive. Um, they would have been quietly supportive of the IRA, as in the Northern IRA, back in the day, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, they wouldn't have been uh, you know, too upfront about it, but you could still find election manifestos from the 60s and certainly the 70s. Um, where they were people who were running in the Finnafall were openly referring to themselves as former members of the Kerry Third IRA Brigade from 1956. I mean, that, there is that part of them that's there, and they're very not only une- uneasy but very unhappy about this. Um, people like Eamon O'Queeve, who is the grandson of Eamon de Valera and still in the party, is very, very un- unhappy about this. I could absolutely see if they're if they're fucked. In a local election, which they will be, um, I could see them splintering off from the party. I could see a split within Finnafall, uh, and them saying, "We're the real, we're the party of De Valera. We're the real." And you know, for all of his faults, De Valera built houses, which certainly is not going to happen with this government. And in fact, I live on a boat. Um, the recent bit of news was that the Green Party minister for the uh, for the I think it was the environment which includes also a, a portfolio for canals because i live on the royal canal um was you know there was a they were going to take some boats out of the the grand canal basin down the middle of dublin and he zoomed in and said no 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 we can use this this could be a future for housing people living on the canals this is going to be great and that told me right there that they're going to do nothing about housing they're going to try and shove people into boats which is fine for me because I wanted to live in a boat, but a lot of people won't have, won't want to, uh, or stick them in caravans or whatever. I think you know it's pretty clear what's the way the the government's going to go. Um, and I think at this point, what we should briefly do before we move on to Miss Nagel's piece is say that membership of a union now is going to be key. I think going forward, however long this government lasts. You know, there's just a thing announced today about the EU agreeing to a 1.8 trillion euro kind of bailout of sorts. How much of that goes to business and how much of it goes to normal people, obviously, is, is, you can use your you use your intelligence to figure out. But they're going to institute hideous austerity. And that's that's we're all just waiting for the, the shoe to drop on that. So and the Greens aren't going to help you. And Sinn Féin in opposition is not going to be able to help you. Join a fucking union and get and get moving now, because it's going to be pretty soon now. Once the the vaccine that again, whether this vaccine that's been dreamt up in 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 Oxford is going to solve the problem or not, let's imagine it does. It's pretty clear soon after that, I could see them start really hammering working class people. You know, it's got to get moving now. Um, yeah, I mean, but even just the makeup of the Dal at the moment, it's you know, it's eighty four to seventy five in the opposition. So. There's not, they're going to be able to vote most things through. You know, it's functioning exactly the way it was designed to do by, you know, by the British government, effectively. Um, so, I mean, we should maybe be looking at some sort of um, push for a different um, voting makeup. Though, you know, as, as um, we all know, if you've been listening to this podcast uh, and beyond, that voting really doesn't do anything. The... I mean, that's not fair. You get to decide what colour of tie the person who's oppressing you wears. <laughs> There's uh, a great um, thing by Tommy Douglas, who was who's actually the grandfather of Kiefer Sutherland, believe it or not. And he was the guy who came up with the subsidised, taxpayer subsidised healthcare in Canada. 
and he had this great story about the um, mouse land. And he said, basically, mice for years and years were voting for which color um, cat, black cats or white cats or cats with white spots and black fur. And he says, and every time they vote the menu, have to choose between a cat that wants to demand it all mouse holes or giant circles so that they can fit both their paws in or just one paw at a time. Um, anyway, it's a really good animated video online. Well, we're talking about the greens as well. We should probably bring up Eamon Ryan's uh, complete twattery. Uh, oh, God, I forgot about that. <laughs> Eamon Ryan's twattery. Um, so Eamon Ryan, um, within the last, oh, let's just say three weeks, because I can't keep track of all this shite, um, used the N-word repeatedly in the doll, uh, and then apologized after going, oops, wasn't I shouldn't have done that. Um, he then, uh, he did some other stuff, which I can't remember, and then he, um, during a recent vote in the doll, he fell asleep um, and then had to be woken up to vote against a bill to give working people um, uh, kind of basically a better minimum, better wage. I can't remember the specifics of it. It wasn't great optics anyway. Um, does anyone else want to fill in any, any of those stupid things he's done? Um, no, that pretty much sums it. I mean, he also went into government with Fine Gael and Fine Fall, So um, it's just like you can't seem to go five seconds without embarrassing himself um so uh, yeah it'll be interesting to see what he, he's able to do um this week so the 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 question we need to ask ourselves though is is he a useful idiot or is he doing it on purpose he's a useful idiot um so how did he become leader of the party by being <laughs> i actually know the answer to this because i was told by a good pr friend of mine um that in 2011 They've lost all their seats. They, you know, deserve to lose all their seats after after going into government and then backing austerity and the bailout of the banks. And at that point, he was the only one, basically, who had a ministerial pension, uh, and he, or the only one who would give his ministerial pension to the to the party, and that kept them afloat. It allowed them to pay the rent for their buildings in Dublin, and uh, until they were able to begin to claw that back. In whatever 2004 or teen or whatever it was and they started getting members of parliament in, in the european parliament so that's why he's there and that's why he was he's put up with because they owe him um a lot of money basically for for keeping them going when the party was should have died it would have died without him basically well yeah then it should have just died then and would be maybe all in a better position um well in the end there's always that stupid liberal mid, upper middle class part of Dublin that will vote for something that doesn't actually mean anything but looks kind of performative you know and that's what the Green Party is for in some fashion Will has been my last point or maybe I'd like to say about Irish politics where it's it's UK politics but you've got twice of everything so you've got the Conservative Party but twice you've got the Lib Dems but twice um, and then you've got UKIP, but that's like basically almost every independent uh, candidate. So, and uh, you get to vote like nine times as well. So, if um, if anything, it's the, the distillation of British uh, voting system um, on steroids. Who, who fucking designed it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. We should move on to something because Will's been awfully quiet on this because he doesn't really know much about the subject. But I'm hoping he read that article. About Angela, 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 and um, it's growing up with Germans. Angela, um, about Angela Nagel. So, Will, 
I want to hear your opinion on her short, illiterate, uh, badly worded, probably some typos in there, opinions on Ireland and wokeness. So I was like incredibly confused by it all from start to finish. So like obviously like for like people who don't know Angela Nago or um, I think we should just stick with calling her Angela. Angela Nago um, wrote a book called Kill All Normies that was published by Zero Books. And it charted the rise of the alt-right from 4chan, like the, um, nominally like the image board um, that became like super popular around about the mid-2000s. And Angela Nagel, if we're sticking with it, um, basically in this book weirdly tried to blame Tumblr um, for the rise of the alt-right. She said that trans people had taken over Tumblr to such a degree um, that they became like kind of parodies of themselves essentially um, and therefore became like an easy target for for like just ridicule from um from 4chan and out of this like solidified a transphobia and like a hyper ironic um transphobia that then like was transplanted onto like racism issue, like issues around racism and issues around like homosexuality and, and things like this so like the book itself was really bizarre and it didn't like it didn't really critically engage with the alt-right so when you sent me this article that she'd written on um, the website Unheard, which which is just like, presumably the tagline is something like Unheard for people who have been cancelled or I don't know, whatever nonsense. Um, like people with a massive platform believe they're being persecuted through. Um, when you kind of sent me this article, I was kind of like interested to find out if she'd, um, I suppose, like grown as a journalist um, or like had developed some sort of intuitive sense of um, how to kind of criticise uh, or like critically approach like a new phenomenon so she's written this article about wokeness in ireland and she makes like a few really bizarre claims the one that i really focused on or the one i couldn't get around was she says um like actually i'll quote it if you don't mind it says something like what about the special place given to the irish language and state institutions which it could easily be argued excludes and discriminates against foreigners so she's basically, she's making this claim that Ireland um, has this tension within it. It's super woke um, because it's, you know, part of this neoliberal um, global movement where like you're welcoming corporations and American Silicon Valley companies and all this kind of stuff, while at the same time it really participates in its own sense of identity. And she argues that these things cannot go together. And when you take a close look at Ireland, um, the fact that it has its own language its own um, cultural heritage and its own um, sense of identity about what it is to be Irish. Um, she thinks that this is, and she expressly says it loads of times, um, hyper ethno-nationalistic. Um, so like she kind of like says, she makes this claim that in virtue of this ethno-nationalism that Ireland participates in, um, it cannot, it can't like over the long term um you know participate in like what we call identity politics or whatever um so i found this really weird and specifically i found the claim that ireland having its own language therefore makes it somehow politically regressive really really weird i mean every country's got a language like not everyone can speak that country's language or like you know um in scotland we speak english and england we speak english and everyone has a language it doesn't mean to say that it's like exclusionary in some way because like we all have a language it's really bizarre so yeah, I don't know what you guys thought, but like the main thrust of our argument I got was something like you cannot have a sense of identity and be woke at the same time. That was like, that's what I took an argument to be saying. Well, I mean, the first 
the first line in it is talk to an educated Irish person. So, <laughs> I mean, so. already you're starting on the worst fucking foot that you could do. Definitely. And it kind of is just that, like, speaks of the sort of, like, some of the worst aspects of, like, Irish uh, intellectual and big fucking air bunny quotes um, mindset, where um, I think, like, Ireland's kind of weird in the sense that the the predominant, the chattering class are deeply ashamed of the past of Ireland, where, you know, most places in the world, you know, for better or for worse, but usually worse, the, um, you know, the American intellectual elite, um, again, you know, that's almost a sarcastic um, thing to call them. But, they, you know, they'll spend all their time talking about how great um, the US is and everything that they've done. And they spend a lot of their time apologizing for war crimes, where in Ireland, because it's a post-colonial mindset, you know, now, um, like basically the chattering classes spend most of their time punching left and shitting on you know genuinely like good things and moments like you know whenever when when was the last time that you ever heard you know someone from D4 like defend Konstantin Markovic or James Connolly or someone like that you know not recently um, I mean Without going to a huge and long historical thing, brief, I can sum it up in probably two sentences, which is that the last time everyone was like, whoa, Ireland, was in 1966 with the 50th anniversary of the Rising. And I can know that because my mum was a kid at the time and she was, they were filled up with kind of nationalistic pride. And one of the reasons why that kind of evaporated was the car bombs, the ethnic slaughter, well, religious slaughter in, in Northern Ireland. And that, for a lot of people, still to this day, um, who lived through it, or more importantly, were, were like kids during it, um, and how their parents kind of reacted to that, made people hate Irishness. It was, it was kind of a, a second wave of kind of Celtic cringe that only really began to ebb away with the, the 100th anniversary of the Rising in, uh, four years ago. So, I mean, I, I do agree with James that, that Nagel is kind of... She's pointing at something that's there about Irishness. Um, just to interrupt James, but continue on, James. No, that, I mean that's fair. But the um, the sort of the point that I think I'm sort of um, teetering around, basically, for a lot of like the middle class of Ireland, culture didn't start until the '90s. Maybe a little bit of you two, depending on how old they are. Maybe Thin Lizzy if they're in their '70s. But basically, they didn't think that, you know, Irish culture started until the Cranberries or the Coors or Bewitched or um, someone like that, you know? And if you if you spend any time watching RTE documentaries, uh, no matter what's happening, they will find the time to somehow have a pop at Sinn Féin or the IRA um, and will spend absolutely no time, no matter how pertinent it is to... The situation about the Catholic Church and you know the fact that Ireland lived under theocracy for 40 50 years and you know there was institutionalized like you know sexism and violence against women uh, but they won't mention that that just goes without comment there's a really there's a really good um, 
article. I think you can find it online by a guy called John Regan. And he's a graduate, I think, of St. Andrews in Edinburgh. And it's called Southern Irish Nationalism. It's one of the best takes on the truth that no one wants to say publicly in Ireland, which is that the leaders of the state that was created here in 22 were explicitly partitionist. And every leader of the state since, including Eamon de Valera and all the others, have been partitionist too. And that's just the, the way it is. In their eyes, they don't want the North. It's the, you know, it's the same reason what, you know, it's like the late people in the Labour Party going, oh, we're in favour of working class people. You almost should just, just assume the opposite. And so when people like Michal Martin, who's the now Taoiseach, says, you know, oh, I'm a Republican, just add the word anti-Republican. Or you just assume the opposite. Uh, and that's just kind of the way it is. And, and I think everyone knows that. And they now think because of the, the tax, uh, you know, the, what we've become a tax haven, you know, giving us a certain degree of wealth. They, I think they powerfully worry about Sinn Féin and what it represents, because it represents not just a segment of the urban working class in Dublin and other parts of the Republic, but it represents, more importantly, that large swathe up north that they don't want anything to do with. Um, and that's why it's so threatening, and that's why they have to keep pounding home on it. Uh, in their eyes, they're happy with the status quo, very, very happy. And they don't want to upset that in any way. And so that's why they keep hammering home the IRA thing. I mean, we can come back to that in a bit, though. I, I think it, we should probably keep on the old Nagel. Um, I should add a few things about her. I, I only recently learned, because maybe I missed this. I'm, I'm a bit, uh, we're all, we're, I think all of us are a bit younger than her. Um, she was a member of the Workers' Party or associated people with the Workers' Party, which, well, again, without going into it too much for, for Will, IRA, uh, Marxist, split off, became the Workers' Party, split off, split up again and became the Labour Party of today in Ireland. So basically not in any way socialist. Um, some of them, though, have, have remained associated with the, the title Workers' Party. Um, and they are known for being supporters of Assad, uh, they're known for being a bit dubious about China. Um, uh, basically, they're of the view that whatever lingers of the <laughs> pre-Sino-Soviet split in the 50s is a good thing. So, you know, it was a bad idea. It's bad what happened to Serbia, you know, in the 90s. Uh, that type of thing. They, they have those types of beliefs. And so she fits kind of into that, into that type of contrarian, you know, Christopher Hitchens pre-Iraq war. That type of weird, actually quite you know authoritarian, not particularly socialist, you know, basically like a more a, a, a more clever Brendan O'Neill with with less of a forehead. Cool, she sounds great. <laughs> I mean, I think the thing that confused, like, I was listening to James talking about Irish culture, and like, I don't know if it'd be useful for people. Um, certainly, be useful for me to get maybe more of a sense of like what what you mean when you were saying things like Ireland didn't have a sense of like its own culture up until the 90s because like growing up um I'd always like and like, th again this may be purely my like weird romanticism or like bizarre education that um Ireland was always like this kind of cultural beacon for the world like you guys had James Joyce you had like various poets like I hate poetry like I'm a total philistine when it comes to that but like man you guys like had such an enormous cultural output um like Beckett and people like this that it just it just seems so strange to like think of Ireland as being culturally barren but yeah I mean a lot of the people that you're mentioning there also exist pre-theocracy Ireland though or 
exist outside of that, you know, because they were living in Paris at the time. Again, you know, it's, it's complicated, but say like folk music, let's take that as an example. It was like Ireland was very important, uh, partly because of the dysphoria in Scotland and England, especially London and Liverpool, but just because there was like tons of great folk musicians still kicking about Ireland, no matter what the politics of the time. So, you know, there would be a good example of its cultural capital that it produced around the world and was um, respected for. But um, unlike, say, folk music in England and Scotland of the 60s, it's still very much a working class genre. He, still now, I mean, are you telling me Mumford and Sons are not a working class folk <laughs> band? Um, I mean, I just uh, interrupt there for a second about yeah. kind of how I think that developed, and it com- it comes back again to what we talked about, and it's I don't want to go too much into it because it, it it would take too long. It it really needs its whole other episode, if not series. That there was a working class in Ireland, it was the majority of the population, much like it was the majority of the population in England and Scotland. It was systematically eradicated slash exported throughout the the former British Empire and the current British Empire in the late 19th century. By the early 19th, uh, sorry, early 20th, a lot of the people who supported the IRA in Dublin still do support the IRA and and Sinn Féin were working class, but kind of a a disproportionately small by British comparisons, um, you know, percentage of the population. And there was that fear with them as there always is a fear with the working class everywhere that they are kind of are potentially revolutionary or will upset the status quo. And so music associated with the Republican movement, with working class movement. So again, then uh, James was mentioning um, folk music. Uh, so people like the Dubliners were pro IRA very much. So in the fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, Christy Moore was at um, Mark McGuinness's funeral, sang at his graveside. I mean, this was, in their eyes, was not appropriate Irish culture. I mean, they banned multiple songs from fucking the Dubliners. They banned them, you know? Um, Works like uh, The Ginger Man by J.P. Dunleavy in the 50s, which is a great book, were banned. So that's kind of, in the eyes of Catholic conservative Ireland, culture did not include James Joyce. Um, It did not include anything by William Butler Yeats after 1916. It didn't include any folk music where they're talking about the heroes of the past or having sex and drinking. All of that was not official Ireland. So it should be said that that, that there is a big class war, as there is everywhere, in Ireland. It just doesn't get talked about in the same way it should. And so to bring this back to Nagel, the things I thought which were interesting about it, and I do think there are some interesting points, but they're none of the main points she's making. She half-heartedly makes reference to Ireland being a colony, well, an economic satellite, anyway, of America. And I really profoundly think we are. Uh, I also think other parts of Europe are as well, and certainly Britain is to some degree. Um, And I think those are good points. Again, only casually made, and then quickly she heads over the idea of ethno-nationalism. But Nagel's idea that somehow Ireland is having a threat from from the liberal centre um as opposed from as opposed to or irish culture and irish identity is a, th- a threat from the liberal center as opposed to from where it was from which was the extreme right i mean ireland is a theocratic 
you know, in some ways fascistic, you know, society, not militaristically, but in some of its beliefs towards women and, and children and people with alternative ideas. So, I mean, it, that's where the danger has always been. And, and if you look at the, the March for Innocence, as it was called, and I, I linked Will to this, so he should be able to talk about this too. Um, there was a march and a kind of demonstration outside the GPO uh, led by people who were, some of them were known um, kind of people who had been done time for pedophilia. And they're trying to get the uh, openly gay minister for, uh, I think it's health or children, to resign. Because there's one photo of him with Peter Tatchell. So what do you what do we think of the idea that when it comes to that article with her, Angela Nagel, uh, Angela Nagel that there are some good points about the idea, well, very few, but some, about the idea that Ireland is a economic satellite of Silicon Valley and that we have basically imbibed a lot of those kind of gig economy ideas. And there is a danger there more so with the kind of what that would mean for like low wages gig economy stuff than really the social stuff i think it makes i think she obviously doesn't she doesn't live in ireland anymore from what i've been able to tell and she certainly does not know where most people who are a decade younger than us are because they are very very republican and they are many of them are uh, certainly the ones on twitter that i would follow are very very pro-irish language uh, while at the same time being internationalists as always has been the case with republicanism. So I think that's bullshit, and we don't need to talk about that, because it's so palpably not true. Will said earlier that, you know, about the idea of kind of ethno-nationalism, uh, oh, we're going to start taking down statues. But that seems so ridiculously stupid that it doesn't even feel like any need to say it. Uh, like, I mean, yeah, because we could just go, yeah, well, that was stupid, because it's I mean, she could provide no links. Usually, if you read something by, you know, Pankash Mishra had a great, like, fucking book-length article that came out recently. And, like, at the bottom, there's just, like, trove of references. With her, she was just nothing. It was just, like, a like here's somebody who needs to come up with a column. Goes, uh, Irish, some Irish people I met don't like me. They must be representative of all young, educated Irish people. There you go. Column done. Well, I think what it's good at showing you is the like the way that certain sections of uh, and basically all of the the Irish um, you know journalists think and talk about and what you know they're discussing at their dinner parties. I mean, as we've said before, say like you know Ireland is sort of different in England in terms of statues because it's got a statue of you know Phil Linnett and it's got a statue of Jim Larkin and people like that so um and like republicanism even though it's complicated does have a history of anti-racist um DNA you know um and that can be shown time after time. Well, here's a line here it says well educated Irish young people in Dublin copied the Black Lives Matter protest from America as if you know, like there's no black people in Ireland, um, and so I think the last time she was here, there probably wasn't any black people living here. <laughs> Wrongly thinking that historical facts could ever stand a chance against the wrecking ball of the current international woke culture revolution, and like the problem is, is like, look, it's because the facts are not on their side. But in, because... that's like that's a terrible fucking sentence. Like that, there's, some, I mean, will you're like fucking a teacher if someone wrote that in the fucking article for fucking high school 
secondary school over here, you go, oh, that's terrible. That's like, you know. Yeah, I mean, like, none of it, like, literally none of it stands up. Like, she doesn't reference anything. She's just, like, using her, like, smooth brain to, like, spew a bunch of shit no one actually believes. If the article was about, like, I, I think I agree with you, Alex. I mean, if the article was about um, how Ireland have become this really bizarre um, neoliberal state, then I think that would be a really interesting article. But she's not written that article. What she's doing is she's trying to say something like, Ireland has this internal tension, and actually, um, Black Lives Matter Ireland is bad, actually. And um, they're all a bunch of hypocrites because um, Irish statues are are all problematic, And but we, we don't want to topple them all down. At the end of the article, she starts talking about the James Connolly statue. And it says, um, surely they'll let us keep the Marxist James Connolly, one might think. And then she kind of goes on to say how liberals love James Connolly, which I find really bizarre. But then she talks about how anarchists graffitied James Connolly. And I don't think she understands either what graffiti is or what it is to like valorize something. So apparently anarchists graffitied the James Connolly statue, but they did it by putting on a mask. Like, like you know, an anti remember I was there. That's not graffiti. That's like saying this dude is a comrade, right? Like, I mean, that's what it says to me. That's so literally, like, everybody who has been there has been saying on anyone I know who was there has been saying on Facebook, where the fuck did she get that from? Like, I mean, she obviously wasn't there and heard that through several other people because that's not what happened. But like her telling of the story is the story you would tell as well. Um, and it just seems it, it just seems like she's having this leap to say people put a mask and like have a raised fist next to the statue. Therefore, the statue is bad somehow. I don't understand like how she's drawn these conclusions unless like I'm, I was I was going to do a Zizek voice here, but I'm not going to bother unless she's like coming through pure reactionary ideology, um, which she is. She's just a reactionary. I don't understand why, why she identifies as being left wing. Um, I can like, tell she she's done the same thing Brendan O'Neill did that um, Christopher Hitchens did. So they began as tankies. And to quote Chomsky, these types of people have tend to have the the god quote the god that failed complex, which is that the thing they believed in didn't work out for them in the way they wanted, which was always about giving them power. In the case of Nagel, she's found she gained fame by talking about 4chan and Tumblr, and now her big thing is to just only talk about that and make up shit about it. But I mean, let's let, right. Let's take some of the ideas here because what these people often do the mistake of is that. They they either explicitly say or they um, you know imply that people apart from them are incapable of understanding nuance. So you know as what was the thing that I said earlier where she was like um, here we go uh, wrongly thinking that historical facts could ever stand a chance against the wrecking ball of the current international woke and then a couple of um, you know, paragraphs later, she goes the line, Connolly, the Catholic river who fought and died alongside the ethno-nationalists who stand a chance, who won't stand a chance when they come for him next time. It's like, that's such, like, like a five-year-old child would be able to understand, like, why that is such a ridiculous position to hold. Like, to to paint Connolly in that way and to say that he died, at, like, alongside ethno-nationalists, it's facetile to the point of being wrong. I think like this idea that if you defend anything, you're a nationalist. So Connolly was a nationalist because he fought off an oppressive force from Ireland. Does that mean like 
many Afghani citizens might be nationalists because they kind of fought the Russians and they fought the Americans. Like, do, does anyone count as a nationalist if they like try and remove an invading force? That's just such a weird definition of nationalism. But it's also just like to say that Connolly was an ethno-nationalist as well. Or like, you know, but it's that he died alongside ethno-nationalists. Like, what would be her position on World War II then? Who, you know, like many ethno-nationalists died fighting some more ethno-nationalists as we, you know, discussed coherently in the World War II episode. It just obfuscates it to the point of stupidity. She has one, I think there's one reference that I saw, which was embedded in the text, links to the thing about Apple. Now, she could have fucking did an article about that, and that would, and, and even said, look, Ireland's become a colony or a fucking a satellite of America, and this is the bad stuff we're picking up. And that would have been a good fucking article. And saying, well, why is it that, it, that the, even the European fucking Parliament or European Court, though it's being appealed, and the final, final decision I've just learned today isn't actually going to happen for another three years. This is just the final decision, not the final, final decision. But they say it's perfectly fucking fine that they're paying 0.005% tax and they're funneling their money that they make for the most part <laughs> through work done in China by fucking slave labor and people done and paid for to some degree by um, American fucking banks or whatever. It's fine to funnel through the country, pay a pittance because we have a apparently there's only like a digital footprint here and they have a fake front company here. That they funnel the money through. It's just, it's insane. So she could have made that point, and that would have been a good article. You would have said, okay, that makes coherent sense. But instead, you go after what? Some people on fucking Twitter? Why? Because they've been calling you out for your bullshit? Um, she just wants to sit in her flat in London, or I don't know, maybe she does live in Ireland. Um, or she like doesn't live in either London or in Ireland. She lives in America. Oh, really? Okay. Um, so, like, yeah, like maybe, maybe like, things from over there how is she getting her news then like why is she developing this opinion that people in ireland are this way when she probably hasn't spoken to one for christ knows how long twitter but um i I suppose the the thing which i mentioned there we should probably finish off with the main event which is the apple ruling um again will would you know much about this I, i know a wee bit about it so like um loads of companies um apple are like the most obvious suspects i suppose um set themselves up um to finish transactions in ireland so like if you make a purchase through apple um if you're like a big corporation and you're buying something from apple um at the point at which the sale is conducted you're normally transferred to a person who will execute your sale in ireland um so apple have got this like kind of nebulous position where like they'll say to like one country, we don't conduct business in your country. Um, and we can prove this because all of our sales are executed in Ireland. And then they might say to the Irish government, um, look, we don't operate in your com- country. All we really do is execute the sales there, but all the business is done elsewhere. And for the most part, like Ireland knew that this wouldn't fly to anyone, but they were kind of happy to have Apple there for reasons I cannot fathom. Um, it's not like they don't employ like enormous amounts of people in Ireland. Um, so it's not like they're a major employer. Um, but yeah, like, so the whole thing's kind of bizarre. So like, I think they owe, is it 18 billion in tax? Or is it, well, they were ri- orig- originally, I think it was 13 billion, but that was back in 2014, I think. And because they're still charging them 0.005, they're meant to owe us 18 or 19 billion now. Yeah, so it's, the whole thing's just ridiculous. Um, and, like, the Irish government kind of seemed... 
like the the way I initially read the report was they seemed to say something like, "Don't worry about it. <laughs> you can like please don't like put yourselves out in any way. We'd rather just you kept on conducting your business as is." Um, and then some like various like legal tax people got involved and said, "Hold on, Ireland, you can't do that." And um, this is bad for international competition. Um, you know, pull your fucking socks up. And the Irish just kind of seemed to refuse to want 18 billion quid or like 14 billion as it was. Or that's how it I, think, I think that, I mean, uh, I haven't listened to this yet. So, and I don't know if I will because uh, I somewhat like Dave McWilliams, who's a kind of, I suppose, more liberal than conservative, but fairly conservative in many ways economist here in Ireland and you know he's he pointed out some obvious things back in the 2000s about the housing bubble and was reviled at the time by the establishment but he has an opinion which I've not read yet but I've been told is he's pro what's happened but I mean I can't understand and and their point of view is okay look everyone in Europe says my tax rates 20% 40% but in reality there's all these tax loopholes and it's actually not that far off ours can you briefly talk about that, Will? Because I don't know enough about it. Yeah, I mean, it just seems to be like a dishonest point, right? So, like, if the claim is something like everyone's avoiding tax throughout Europe, that's true. I mean, that's just, like, as a matter of fact, true. Um, but they're not... It's not because other governments aren't enforcing their tax law. Other governments are trying to enforce their tax law, but these companies keep on relocating to places like Ireland um, because they know that that country won't. So, like, the reason the French get pissed off, the reason the Germans get pissed off, and the reason, on occasion, even the British get pissed off is because, like, they want those companies um, in their country, like, providing, like, piecemeal jobs and providing, like, small amounts of tax. But if the Irish keep on, like, undercutting every other country by saying, don't worry about it, we will not enforce the tax law, um, this this is kind of bad for everyone. Um, it also means that Apple and other major companies... Um, can become like an asset-focused growth company instead of like a profit growth, um, profit-focused growth company. So, like, if Apple are looking for investors and they're looking for ways to show you that their company is valuable, and they can show you that they've got um, like an enormous um, platform on which to sell, that is better for them financially than them turning a profit. They would rather make no profit and have this enormous portfolio than have a smaller portfolio with an enormous profit. And um, not being forced to pay tax enables them to reinvest in that part of their business rather than thinking about the profit they're making. So, like, I don't don't really know this guy, but, like, his position seems to just be, I don't know, it it seems to be a really weird take to say that the French are just as bad. It just seems to be not true. Well, I mean, I think this is the, the Celtic Tiger economy that was created and um, begun to be created in the 70s and has reached finally reached its um apex uh, in um probably the late 90s and and just before the pandemic kind of most of what the Irish economy was in the in the 2000s was a housing bubble to be honest with you so that doesn't really count but the the kind of idea of getting foreign direct investment here to, uh, and again using the existing 12.5% corporation tax but having a million different tax loopholes so meant it was it was literally like less than one percent for a lot of companies and still is i think that is like something that is the model that's kind of that's created or at least enriched a middle class um you know and it like again the kind of social liberalism has has helped that so in many ways Fine Gael is the epitome of of kind of celtic tiger ireland you know so economically 
very very right wing socially um presenting itself as as quote unquote woke um so i mean i i think that the the apple um kind of ruling which again is not final final it's just final for right now uh it tells you a lot about ireland really and even people in the green party or people who talk, like mcwilliams who in other ways would be in favor of things like a wealth tax uh, building of you know of hundreds of thousands of houses, he's he's in favor of building literally a hundred thousand a year. He thinks that's what we'd have to do to meet our responsibilities. So I mean, I I think even they get blinded by this. It's it, they don't really see any other way in the current in the climate or the context of what the world is now to build another economy for Ireland. They they don't understand how there could be another one built. And so the bailout for them makes sense. They say, well, X amount of maybe three thousand people have jobs. We'll tax them. Um, we'll get thirty million from Apple, and that'll be it. Even though they had what, like sixteen point five billion uh, in profits a decade ago. Yeah, you I mean, know, well, like so, like this. I I agree with you. I think this literally benefits maybe a couple of thousand people at most in the country is having these massive like corporations um, operate there, or like have like an office with like nine people in it there. Um, but like, I don't understand like the. I, don't, I just don't understand like why some people in the Irish government think that the best thing to do is to um, build more houses. Where like, and I, I might be wrong about this, um, but it doesn't seem to be the case. It doesn't. There doesn't seem to be a supply issue in Ireland. There, if I remember correctly, there are more empty properties in Ireland that are deliberately kept empty, um, than there are homeless people, um, because it means that the landlords can like keep some properties empty and therefore inflate the um the rental costs of their non-empty properties and um, to extort right. like last amounts correct, of the population yeah. so like why don't the government just say look if you've got loads of empty properties fuck you we're taking them from you and like that's something they could do they don't need to build a hundred thousand houses they can just take some of the houses back on a compulsory purchase order and man i think that'd be a popular policy in ireland it wouldn't be because the people a lot of people want to be landlords who aren't landlords and the people who are landlords vote like a motherfucker that seriously, I'm not making this up. There's like there, and James that can back me up. Unheard of. I know, I know. The world economy. No, but it, there is a definite attitude in Ireland that uh, of you know, if I can get on the property ladder, what that actually means is I can rent out a property I'm having a mortgage on uh, to an overpriced on like again twelve hundred in the best of times, two thousand, two thousand, two grand a, a month for a one bed flat in Dublin. You know, that's what people, a lot of people want. The same people who vote for like the Green Party and go, oh yeah, I think we should recycle. But you know, they want to fucking rat fuck, let's use the word, fucking uh, working class people in Dublin who have to, you know, live in these conditions. So there, there is, Ireland, I think I wrote, I wrote an article for the first anime zines available somewhere. Um, was all, good our, <laughs> all good booksellers. All good booksellers, that's the one. Um, was that Ireland is a landlord's paradise. And I think it is. And that type of ethic is there. We, we don't have to go into where it came from. Everything has its origins, I suppose. But it's there. And I think it's the same reason why the kind of the, 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 the people have the attitude they do about the tax um, system here. Um, and if you even wanted to propose an alternative, like I'm not even talking about the type of alternative we would like. I'm talking about like an alternative which a mildly social democratic party like Sinn Féin would want to propose. You get looked like, like you've got three fucking heads. It's it's such a... Yeah, I mean, so that's the thing with the bailout was I think we're the only country in history who actively celebrated 
the fact that we wouldn't have 19 billion extra for our <laughs> fucking economy. Um, it's just insane. That's just so, um, so like you're a nation of wannabe landlords. Well, yeah, but I mean, mate, you live in England, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We want to be pedophile landlords. <laughs> so everybody uh, who's listened to this uh, and Dan, who has to edit this. Thank you, Dan. Um, thank you uh, for listening. Uh, hopefully you share and subscribe with your friends, with your frenemies, with your enemies, with your dogs, with your cats. Uh, with the population of Liverpool, population of uh, Dublin, population of Leaksip, the godforsaken population of Leaksip. Um, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Goodbye.